Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And we are... For Colored Nerds. The conversations that black people have. When white people are not in the room... But we record them. And we put them on the internet and in your phone. And everywhere. And everywhere. So, welcome back. Here we are. Yeah. 2017 still. Yeah. Popping. Still live. I was going to say still live. That's my only bar. <laughs> That's your only bar. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're here. Um, but yeah, I'm just out living my life. How are you doing? How are you doing, Eric? Not th- I just realized I answered a question that you didn't ask. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fine. I, you know, I'm making it. You know me. I'm like I, I stride on like on melancholy. Melancholy and anger is my fuel. That's so crazy because like it's just I can't do that. It's too taxing for me. Oh, I enjoy it. Mm-mm, I know. Um, well, I'm doing pretty good, and you want to? So- oh, you want to something good? Yeah, you want something good that happened to me? Give me something me? good. I got tickets to the Blacksmith Sonian. I'm going to the Blacksmith Sonian at the end of June. Yeah, even though it is smooth March right now, it is the springtime. I will be going at the end of June, but I'm excited. Um, I'm probably gonna not stop talking about the fact that I have tickets until I go. You know what I appreciate about the Blacksmith Sonian, as you call it? Everybody calls it. Is that? that- it's so po- it's like Hamilton level popping. Like mm-hmm. you have to buy the tickets months in advance. Mm-hmm. Like I just appreciate that. Like some like that just means a lot to mm-hmm. me. You know what I'm saying? That we're that popping. That like you gotta wake up at like you gotta up at like nine o'clock in the morning. Or well, something like I mean, you know me. I'm already by nine o'clock. <laughs> I'm popping. I'm already. I've done everything. Um, but yeah, no, I had to like have several pages open and constantly refreshing and trying to pick different combinations of dates and ticket numbers so that I could actually get tickets. I basically I was scamming the system, and I got two, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna take my wonderful partner. I'm gonna take Bay with me to DC because mm-hmm. he's never been in DC. He's never seen Howard's campus. He's never been to any Smithsonian, uh, let alone the Black Smithsonian. So he's gonna get the full, the full, the full force of my being and identity, all in one day. That's wonderful. I'm That's excited. Wonderful. It'll be a while before I make it out there. It's hard yeah. to travel to DC with a two year old. She's That's not even two. Yeah, I was too. like, okay. I was like, whose child is this? <laughs> yeah. Why don't we go ahead and jump into today? Yes. Yeah, so today we have a super cool, very fun, fantastic guest making his first appearance <laughs> on Four Colored Nerds. We have with us in the studio senior editor at The Fader, Jason Parham. Round of applause, round of applause. What's up, y'all? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know what, t- what t- took me so long to get on this, sh- this, this amazing show, but, you know, I'm here, out here. Out here. 2017 you made it you made it i made it yeah i was gonna say probably what took so long is that eric and i are we're always struggling just to keep it together yeah and no that wasn't on on your part it was like on my part like i should have been like trying to be on here sooner y'all are so popping you know thank you we just we're trying (laughs) we're really trying the the thing that you always tell people that i realize i probably shouldn't tell folks i'm always like we just two ashy blacks out here trying to make it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just trying to make it. So, you know, we appreciate you rocking with us. We really do. And it is chapped. It is cold outside right now. It is brick. You know we how you ashy. know how cold it is? Be, you know the this that time of the year when it gets so you get so ashy between your index finger and your thumb and you mm. can't no matter how much lotion you put right here in this crevice, it's always gonna be ashy. It's like that cold. Yeah, I'm looking at my hands right now. I'm yeah. putting we're doing a little rock. <laughs> sign and I see yep two white circles <laughs> I always just put extra like Carmex on my lips and then I, I like creep my hand up there <laughs> like, just season it throughout the day but uh yeah <laughs> took like a tub of Vaseline like. mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah so we, we we're so thankful to have you here we just want to talk a little bit about you yes Uh-oh. and I guess first up if you could just 
give us a little bit of the intro as to, to how you came to writing. Wow. Um, the abridged version, I studied journalism in undergrad. I studied literature in grad school. I came to New York 2010. I came with no job. I was one of those sort of like dreamers. You know, it's like I was tired of L.A. I'm born and raised in L.A. I was mm-hmm. living in L.A. And I was just ready to get out of there. My mm-hmm. brother and my cousin were living here. They were like, come out. So I was deciding between here and D.C. Mm, you made the right decision. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I love D.C. I do too, but... You know, shout out, you know, chicken wings and mumble sauce. Like, I could live right. off that for the rest of my life. <laughs> but it just in terms of, like, publishing and writing, New York is sort of the mecca and the center mm-hmm. for that, right? And so I came out here, but I had no job. I had a few freelance things lined up, mm-hmm. but I had no steady income, so I was living off my savings for a while. I came in July 2010, and then I got a fellowship at The Voice, The Village Voice, in October. October, November that later that year. Mm. And then from there, it kind of like spiraled into editor gig at Complex, um, editor gig Gawker, mm-hmm. editor gig at Fader, mm-hmm. and then sort of like freelance writing throughout on, uh, those years. Did you write a lot as a kid? Like, have you, have you, has that always been something that attracted you? I really, lo- this is going to sound so nerdy. I love, I mean, it's called for color nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Go deep. <laughs> I love like, sentences and sort of the lyricality of sentences and sort of just words in general. I always tell people now because I think I've read so much, right? So I was reading like four books a week during grad school. Wow. Yeah. Um, So just like at that level. And then so when I got out of grad school, I tried to slow down a little bit in terms of like my consumption of literature. And when I read now, I don't necessarily read for a plot or character. I'm always just reading about how I'm always reading for how writers write, like mm-hmm. style, right? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So how do they construct sentences? How do how does the story like move forward? Like which words are they choosing? And just selfishly for myself to be a better writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I was ever drawn to writing a lot when I was young. I read a lot, mm-hmm. and then I think eventually I was like, I'm not good at anything else. Let me let me like try to be a writer. Mm. That's how we came to podcasting. <laughs> we came to podcasting because you were like. I don't even know you guys just because you asked. Y'all were ahead of the game though, because podcasting blew up. But y'all had had your podcast before, like there was that sort of like the swell, boom. Yeah. yeah, that boom. Yeah, I have to give I have to give Eric credit for that because that was why he was like, I think something's gonna happen with podcasting. We should start a podcast, and I was like, nobody wants to hear us talk. Well, yeah, I mean, and then he, you were right. Well, gladly, I wasn't right that nobody wanted. <laughs> that nobody wanted to hear us talk. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we were both. You had talked about because you you write as well, Brittany, and sometimes it's that's a that's like a that's like a. I don't have the time really to dedicate to it, so I don't do it very much. I wrote something last a year ago. But you on your own, you often write. That's true. You know, true, some true, some true. like personal writing. Uh, you you don't you know publish as often as maybe you should. You hint, know hint, nudge, okay, nudge. Keep going, keep going. But, you know, it's sound like a black dad. <laughs> I'm so glad. It's my default. No, seriously, that is like within our friend circle, that is, I'm glad you said that because that is Eric's identity. But, but continue. No, no, no. But like it, it, it gave us like kind of an outlet. Like we were always consuming things kind of in the same way you were in terms of like reading and right. stuff like that. And uh, I was always just kind of like looking for an outlet. Uh, and I know you were kind of like looking to lean into something that would give you mm-hmm. some sort of creative outlet too, which, mm-hmm. you know, we were able to start doing this and turns out we're maybe not good at much else, but <laughs> that's, that's true. I can cook and you can raise children and that's about the, that's yeah. the extent of all the other talents that we have, but we're not doing too bad. But, um, so you mentioned that you had, you had an editor gig at Gawker and I've been, I have actually, I always read Gawker, like yeah. since I was like a sophomore in college, oh, I was wow. always reading Gawker from 2007 I was regularly reading. I went through this phase where I was like, I don't know what I thought I was going to do. I don't know what job it was. But I was just really into consuming media. I think I always wanted to work in media. I got a film degree. So that that actually, now I think about it, I'm fact-checking myself. I have always wanted to work in media. <laughs> but so I used to just consume it all the time. And Gawker seemed like they, you know, they seemed like they were always reporting on the media. So I always read them. But something that, like, I felt a lot was that it wasn't, like, a place for me. I felt like I was an outsider reading it. Um, now, some of that has to do with the fact that, like, it was about the media industries, and I was in D.C., and I was in college, and I was younger, and, like, I wasn't a journalist. But some of it also just felt like me as, like, a young black woman, Gawker wasn't necessarily a space for me. Right, um, right, but right. when you were an editor there, you created this really cool space within Gawker that featured black talent. And, you know, you, you commissioned a lot of work by black writers, and you featured them in roundtables about topics like new blackness or the validity or relevance of black history. 
History Month. And you also oh, interviewed. That was a good one. That was history. the new blackness one was. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? But honestly, real you talk, said it. I was like, oh, here we go. No, <laughs> that went around like the group texts and yeah. the email. That did go like, around the group yeah. texts. The new black did that go around the group texts. That one went off the rails. But I mean, as new blackness does, you know, yeah, it's, it's you know, filling itself. But also, I mean, the fact that that the fact that a conversation like that, however you feel about it, even if you feel mm-hmm. like it's cringeworthy now, the fact that a conversation like that was happening on a website like Gawker, to me, was right. like, that blew my mind. You know, in addition to doing all that, you also you also interviewed black writers and black people who otherwise might not be featured on Gawker, like Margot Jefferson, right. you know, who wrote Negro Land. Right. Shout out to Margot Jefferson. That was one of the best conversations I've had, actually. She's, I could let, actually talk to her on the phone all day. I mean, For, forever shout yeah. out to, to Margo, Margo Jefferson. Jefferson. <laughs> Just like <laughs> out here really doing it. Yeah. No, that was a, that was an interview. With that the Pulitzer? I, she has a Pulitzer, right? Yeah, I believe I so. I mean, if she so, doesn't, yeah. she has one for yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but like, why was it important for you to create that? Like, why was it important for you to sort of carve out that space and maintain right, it? Right, right. So, I mean, shout out to Max Reed, who came on as editor, or he's promoted to editor. And he was like, I want to sort of take the site in a new direction. And I think they were looking to bring people on who could help diversify the voice of this site um, along racial lines, along religious lines, along class lines. Mm-hmm. And just like push, push conversation in a new direction where Gawker really hadn't gone before. Mm-hmm. Not to say that there hadn't been writers there that had been doing that, because I think Court Jefferson did a lot of that mm-hmm. during his tenure at Gawker. Um, Katie Weaver had done some of that, even behind the scenes, pushing for conversations around blackness, even though, you know, you butt heads a lot with people in charge. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I was specifically hired to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And Gawker is very self-enterprising where it's like they hire smart people and they're just like work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of micromanaging. They're just like, we trust you to bring in good stories. We trust you to interview good people. And we're just going to give you the platform to do that. And me, it's like, okay, well, I know all these talented, amazing people. Mm-hmm. I know all this, you know, this family around me. It's like, let me, like, tap into that and access them during my time there. And so a lot of it was that, just having sort of, like, these conversations on a platform like Gawker mm-hmm. that I would just have with my friends or people were just naturally interested in or just, like, covering things that I'm just interested in. Because if I'm interested in then I think to some degree other people are as well, mm-hmm. right? So that was just sort of my thinking behind it. And it didn't seem it didn't seem like that much of a revelation at the time, but I, I think a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people now, and they're like, you really did bring a lot of people through. Absolutely. Brittany, you kind of touched on it before. Like, that wasn't quite... Originally, I, I didn't see that as a place where I would come to for, for right. like, the, the type of content that you brought right. to it. I'm curious, I mean, you mentioned that, like, they give you a lot of, like, room, uh, or they gave you a lot of room to kind of, uh, to do you know, what what felt natural to you. But I'm wondering, like, you know, if you could speak to any, like, was there any pushback at all in terms of, even maybe in terms of reception? Like, because their dominant, their dominant audience seemed to be somewhat different. Right, a lot of the pushback would naturally just come from the audience, right? So, like, mm-hmm. they have sort of this, in the same way that Beyonce has the Beyonce hive or, like, Rihanna has the Navy, like, Gawker has its, this rabid community yeah. of, like, white folks. Yeah. Um, from all sort of, like, you know, junctures of society that are either like super liberal or super conservative, but everybody sort of, they're all reading Gawker and they all come with these different opinions. And so I didn't realize how huge the platform really was. Like I knew it was Gawker, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize how much of an impact me writing something would carry and then follow me, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then I would be accountable for that, um, these words. Not to say that I was never never acknowledged my sort of accountability for my work, but it was just like you're sort of this hypercriticalness that surrounds the work when you're writing for Gawker because everybody's eyes are on it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and it's built in. Like I mean, like you said, like, like the commenting <clears throat> community was like massive. It's insane, man. Mm-hmm. Like it's I, an absolutely insane. Yeah, and it's some. It, it's weird also how they. I, I'm, Almost more than than most publications like centered that comment community mm-hmm. in like in a lot of well Denton Nick Denton the CEO the former CEO and a founder he was during my first year there they were really big on it was called Kinja the mm-hmm. commenting mm-hmm. sort of the comment section they were wanting to make that sort of the centerpiece of the company and so there was a mandate for writers and editors to if you post something hop in the comments and at least reply to a few people mm-hmm. right so they wanted us to engage in conversation sometimes we did that naturally just because we wanted to like stand up for our work yeah. uh-huh. sometimes people didn't because it was like the work speaks for itself why am I repeating myself mm-hmm. but there was early on there was this mandate at least when I was there that you know jump in, talk to folks, get conversation going. 
Um, which is, I think, good and bad, right? I yeah. think for me, though, it's like I, I'd rather do it when it's more organic, when I feel the need to do it as opposed to being told to do it. But Yeah, and I mean, something I'm curious also, like if this, if you felt like this relates, is like we talked before, actually when Clover, Clover Hope was here. Shout um, out to Clover, who's amazing. Yeah. She is amazing. It's like very silently and quietly like out here killing it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like her, she has a critical eye and a critical ear. She's been in the game for a minute too, just like Yes, she has. With bangers. Yes. For a while. For yeah. a while. And but like one of the things she talked about, we were talking about uh Leslie Jones kind of back when the whole thing with uh Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters uh first popped up and a lot of the hate that she was receiving. She was kind of talking about like just that extra burden that it takes to be black and in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt like Gawker, Gawker was weird in that regards because, like, it almost cultivated that, like, within the site, you know, because you, you kind of described that, like, the expectation to go in and engage with this commenting mm-hmm. community that often, you know, didn't necessarily... Uh, like the people who were most engaged in the commenting, at least at least from my observation, didn't necessarily seem like a majority of the people who might be reading the type of work right, that you, right. you cultivated, even right. though uh, I was one of those people who, who was reading that. But like, I'm wondering if you like if things felt more public for you because you had to go in and then like almost like greet the horde, <laughs> if you will. It was it was scary sometimes. Um so my only mandate as an editor and as a writer has always just been to add more context to the story of blackness, right? I want to keep diving deeper and deeper. So that's the only thing that sort of connects everything that I do. I've never had a, a, a beat, as you call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I cover race, politics, uh, um, sports, just sort of across the board. But I've mm-hmm. always in some way engaged blackness. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about very black things on a very, for its own fault, a very white and male site, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And so it was at times it was very sort of scared to jump in there and sort of engage the public, um, the horde, because they were hungry and they were and sometimes they were smarter than me. I wouldn't want to admit that. But it was like Mm -hmm. sometimes they made an incredible point that I that couldn't go back on, you know. But it's kind of like you have to stand up for your work. Um, but it was like growing, like you're saying, being black in public was like growing up in public too, like mm. becoming a better writer and becoming a better editor and becoming more critical of your own work. I think it was good. It's in in terms of like how I feel like complex made me into a, a person who could just make content anywhere. I think Gawker made me f- not afraid. You mm. know, in, in the same sense, it's like I think every publication has given me something different, and Gawker sort of, I think I grew a lot of you know tough skin when yeah. I was working there. I want to go back to something. That was in the original question that I asked you. When I mentioned the Black History Month roundtable, like you lit up. <laughs> oh, that was fun, right? I love I because th- people kind of think Black History Month is a joke, but I take it very seriously. Yeah. Um, and so I'm trying to remember who was on that. Yeah, it was it was you, Loretta Charlton from Vulture, right, Jenna right, Wortham, right. Rambert Brown, Hillary Crossley from Jezebel, and Craig Howard. Who at oh, the wow, time was, was at Deadspin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. In hindsight, that's a squad too. No, right? that's a. <laughs> Hey man, I only put squads together. Like, this, is, this, is, this is a squad. <laughs> um, no, yeah, that was a good one. That was fun. I did. There was sort of I was experimenting a lot, right? Because mm-hmm. I think Gawker hadn't really done a lot of roundtables before I got there. At least that I was aware of. Yeah. Um, right, because they were they were growing and they were evolving. And I think a lot of Max's mandate was sort of like let's engage culture from every angle. And so I think roundtables are especially impactful and it's and on a topic like this when you have people who are, who are coming from different areas of you know black america mm-hmm. who are coming from di- who have different histories of blackness right mm-hmm. and so we're all coming with something different to the table where as opposed to me just writing something on black history month myself wouldn't be as effective as you know five people getting together and like coming with all these different ideas and thoughts right mm-hmm. i black history month is i mean Eric and I have discussed this at length, and like we had a, a a live show in February that was Black History Month theme. I'm so glad to hear you say that you take it seriously because I just feel like I don't see any I don't see any reason. I mean, why the not. world has, is trying to sort of delegitimize blackness, so let's just sort of claim what's ours and be proud of that. Exactly, you know? exactly, exactly. And I'm into like the Black history of like the everyday people now, right? So we know about the Martin Luther Kings and the Malcolm X's. Exactly. Let's like get to like the nitty gritty of like the people that are just really doing the work as well, that did the work and are doing the work, you know? Exactly. And a lot of people like that like are in our own families, mm-hmm. are right, in our right, own right, bloodlines. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? I think that stuff is so beautiful. And those people don't always, like they, a lot of those people didn't get the recognition when they were alive. Also Black History Month this year was extended since Moonlight won. 
we are now in month two of Black History Month. <laughs> I'm with that. I'm trying with to get that. to my 12. <laughs> <laughs> See how we keep this train going. Um, I want to ask you um, another question. Actually, pretty much every question I think about it, we were going to ask you, as with your writing, pertains to blackness. Um, as with the show also pertains to blackness. Yeah. On message. <laughs> On message. But one of your most powerful essays uh, was published in The All in 2015. Uh, yeah. And... It was called A Recent History of Pain, right. and it was like a series of vignettes just like about black pain and, and things that happen in your everyday life. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us the story of how that essay came to exist. So the all was doing this end of year. Let's back up a little bit. I was let go from Gawker in November 2015, mm-hmm. and I got a severance package, which was very nice. And I was off basically for two months, still getting paid. Mm-hmm. Um it was weird getting fired or getting let go from Gawker because it's like, I, I think it gave me this attitude where I just kind of don't give a fuck anymore about media where it's like, either you want me or you don't want me, mm-hmm. right? Either you are going to believe in my work or you're not going to believe in my work, mm-hmm. right? So how I was saying gave me sort of this thick skin. Yeah. But it's sort of like giving me this this persona and this attitude where it's like, I kind of, it's just like I'm me against the world, Tupac sort of like mantra. But I was let go from Gawker in, 20, in November 2015, it was a Tuesday. I don't ever forget that day. We got like drinks. It got so wasted after. <laughs> but um, <laughs> if not then, when? <laughs> like fuck it. <laughs> I tried. I tried to save y'all, but um, uh, and it, it, I made that earlier that day before it happened. I'm sorry. I'm going to get to answer no, your question right. in a second. And I was joking with my coworkers when we found that the layoffs were coming, and I was like, they're not going to like all oh, the black guy, right? <laughs> Like the one that, black right? guy, like they're not that dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, but um, that happened in November, and then I got hit up by the all. They were doing an end of the year series where people were just sort of reflecting on their year, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> we had met. Um, we kind of knew each other casually, and he was like, "Do you have anything?" Uh, for me and I've been thinking about this idea of sort of like pain and how it manifests differently in each of our lives because mm-hmm. um, it's something we don't talk about or at least something I, I don't talk about a lot within my family we don't talk about I don't want to like blanket sort of black folks but blanket statement but mm-hmm. we don't like to talk about sort of like mental health and sort of like things that are crippling our community a lot you mm-hmm. know and so I wanted to, to touch on it in a way that felt very real to my life, but also I think other people could connect with. Mm-hmm. So which is why the piece sort of is structured in sort of different vignettes. Mm-hmm. And the the genius of the all is that they kind of in the same way that Gawker the all was like, well, you can just do your own thing and we'll just, you know, try to make it as best as that own thing as it is, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was good. I don't know. It was... It was tough. It was one of those things where I like I'm in my head a lot, so I was thinking about that a lot before I actually wrote a sentence. Mm. So it was it was almost all written in my head before I'd actually sat down to write it. Mm. But I'm thankful to them. It's sort of talking about mental health and the scene, or opening up with the scene where my friend finds out that his brother has died, and just sort of like then going you know into the next scene with Claudia Ranking and being uptown and. There was just a lot happening, and I think because blackness works in so many different ways, I was trying to also reflect that, you know? I mean, the thing that I'm curious about, like, in that, in that, because, like, you seem, like, you seem now, you know, as you described, as if you're still, like, like coming back to that still is affecting you in some sense. Right, I don't like, think it's complete. I think I'm going to keep doing something with it. I, mm-hmm. I, I want to keep it going in some way, but just even doing research on, like, depression or, like, black suicide or, like, it's just very hard. Right. Yeah. And so I think I had there was a while back where I was doing a lot of research because I wanted to continue this and expand into something bigger. Because There's been a lot of great reception for this piece. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things I look back on of all the things I've written that I'm still kind of very proud of, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is at least for myself is very hard as a writer um, looking back on a lot of my work. But uh, it's one of those things where it's like I'm proud of this. So I want to keep it going. And but doing the research for it, we're just becoming too exhausting and just kind of making me sad and mm. so I, I put it to the side for a while but i, I do want to keep going which yeah. i think i i'm always constantly thinking about how to, how does pain manifest for us right because mm. we're living in such a moment that requires so much of us yeah. but that rewards us so little mm-hmm. you know um and so i think especially now under trump where it's like every day there's something new 
there's some new attack coming for us or for the people in our lives. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard. I, and I think the pain sometimes manifests in very small ways that we don't notice and sometimes in very tangible ways that we can't control. Yeah. And even now, like all those things feel magnified. Right. You know? Right. Like, mm-hmm. The right. things that we see, obviously, we're even, even like so you mentioned, like, you know, obviously we're living in Trump's America right now. And like I'm I find myself like knowing more about like policy than I ever have and feeling like affected by that in a way that I have never really anticipated. And I found it's almost like a it's 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 an outsized relationship to those like small everyday stressors of pain that I'm also like like those things feel magnified. There there feels to be oddly less of a balance in terms of like how you approach like the different the different things that cause you pain in a day to day life right. because they feel so like frequent now. Yeah, man, it's super demanding the frequency with which it's coming at you. It's 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 just hard, you know, not to say, and I, I was talking to my mom about this. And she was like, we've been through this before. And it's like sort of the older mm-hmm. generation is like, yeah, we've, we've done this. Like, it's going to be okay. It seems bad. But like you're saying, it seems so much more amplified now because yeah. of the way we live. We live in such a sort of hyper-documented state, right? Where it's like, where it's on Twitter, it's on Snap, it's on the news, which is 24 hours and it doesn't cut off. Yeah. You know, it's. It's exhausting and the shit fucking it's fucking hard. <laughs> that makes me wonder though, like what does pain management look like for you then? I've been try- and I've been trying to figure this out, right? So like a part of me doing this piece and trying to extend it is also me trying to answer it in some way, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it in in the short term has been detachment from everyday things or just saying no to people when I used to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um being more selfish with my time, right? Not going out on Saturday because I'd rather chill on my couch and watch, you know, chewing gum and instead yeah. of like go out and like party. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's it's. I think I'm still figuring that out. You know, because I mm-hmm. think you have to adapt because the world is constantly evolving. So I think the answer to the what does that management look like? It's it's different every week and every month, mm-hmm. right? Because so many things are happening and so many things are changing and escalating too. Yeah. Right. 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 But it's also just like putting love back onto the people that you really love and telling the people in your life that you love them mm. because you don't know if they're going to be there. You know, it's just holding those people close. I don't know. It's, it's, it's in a way it's a survival, you know, it's survival. It's also defense. Being an adult is hard, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just about like being an adult and how hard it is. It is. Well, because you're more conscious of all of this now, right? Yes. Well, not only that, like, I th- that's, th- that's something I've been thinking about recently is just sort of like, um, you're more conscious of everything. And then also, like, there's nobody to, this is like a classic adult growing up thing, but there's nobody else to depend on. And like, if you so choose, or if you are Eric already, like there's somebody who's you know who may depend on you right, yeah. or does depend on you, and it's sort of like you keep looking up the food chain. You're like, okay, <laughs> like yeah. who's gonna relieve me? Who's gonna tap me out? And like you can't tap out of it. It's gonna keep going. In the best case scenario, it will be like this for another whatever. I'm, we're all about thirty, yeah. so like it'll be in the best case scenario, it'll be like this for like another fifty years. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that's like that's scary yeah. and like um but the only like i do get some Wait, best case scenario we're all dying at 80 i'm just saying i'm saying like you know they're 50 60 years <laughs> i figured 80 was like a good Modern medicine you know we, we might be out here to like 100 i know but i'm like looking at i'm like do i want to be actually <laughs> i was like do i really want to be out here start breaking down right nobody else is around all my friends are dead like is it gonna be popping i don't know i figured 80 was a good solid <laughs> I could, lived. I could. We've lived. I could. I can hang up my hat. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm no, you good. But um, but the thing that does give me some solace is knowing that like I have like more time to get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it is also hard because like the better you get at taking care of yourself, or the the more attuned that you become to like even the ways in which you don't make things exactly peachy for other people yeah. or for the people around you. Like it always there's there's always like a discomfort in like in getting better because you sort of realize oh I've been. Like, I know I feel conflicted about the ways in which I'm fucking up now, but also that hurt is compounded by the fact that you've been fucking up for a while. Right. <laughs> You're like, oh, I've been doing this for a smooth minute. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, like, you know, best case scenario, another five, six, maybe six <laughs> decades. But I have time to sort of like, I guess, figure out how best to mm-hmm. mitigate mm-hmm. all of these circumstances. It's but, not easy. No, it's not easy. It's worth it, but it's not easy. It is worth it. It is worth it to explore that, though. 
like just always feeling like like that reflection. Like I found so much more like a lot of like pain. I guess management is kind of how we've been talking about it. Yeah. We're just like reflecting mm-hmm. on that. Like, but the reflection and like the 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 process of trying to improve. You know, like. It's one that is taxing, but, like, if when you get up on that, like, small little piece of progress, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, when you have that moment where, like, oh, I wouldn't have done this this way two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> now things are, you know, now things are looking a little up. Yay for growth. Exactly. Like, it, it's definitely, definitely worth it. Okay, so the next question that I'm going to ask is about your current job situation. When you work at The Fader... Uh, and yeah, if, we wrote about y'all. You yeah, did wrote about and, uh, us. Two, Appreciate um, that. Uh, Megan did that. That was, I think, that was the, one of the first things I commissioned because we were doing something on podcasting. I was like, mm-hmm. "We gotta talk to for, for Color Nerds crew. They're Thank so tight." So no, we appreciate that because yeah. that made it seem legitimate. So <laughs> you're probably <laughs> legitimate. Please. I uh, called my mama after that piece. I was like, <laughs> "That was one where I was like, mama, um, I'm in a magazine." <laughs> no, my younger sister, she still hasn't listened to for color nerds, and she's never listened to my other show at Gimlet. She's like in my family, so that's not the purpose that I serve her. I, my purpose is definitely not to entertain her. Like, she's not interested in that. Um, but I think she actually did read the fader piece. I think for her, that was like, oh. She's kind of a music snob. So I think for her, she was like, oh, okay, this is real now. <laughs> um, no, but in that, like, like the fader does kind of, it's like, a, I would describe you guys as like a music and style publication. And you guys kind of like set the tone for what's considered cool. And you joked about a year ago on Twitter that it took you four months, but you finally <laughs> turned fader into a black hair magazine. I think that's the only good tweet thread like I had. That's the only <laughs> this good series of tweets I've ever done. All my other tweets are terrible, but that's a good one. No, right? you update it. You no, I know like that's every... that's why it's I think fun fun, but like I'm obviously I'm joking, but I'm not joking. But <laughs> I think one of the j- reasons I took the position at Fader. Mm-hmm. So this is after the, sort of the layoffs at Gawker, and I took some time off to just decompress and recharge and unplug from just working on the internet. You know, so so. So constantly for two years at Gawker. But um, Fader just always had such an important legacy to me. So the way mm-hmm. you're saying your sister connected with it, it, it connects with youth in a way that I hadn't realized, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And um, I think they're on the, we're on the pulse in a way that I think a lot of other music um, and culture publications aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a credit to our amazing staff, obviously. And we've been, I don't know, we've been very fortunate in the year that I've, <clears throat> a little over a year that I've been there to really do some very cool things. Mm-hmm. We had Serena on the cover. Yes, I did. Just like, <laughs> I still don't believe that that actually happened. She's so amazing. And then I got a chance to do a DMX oral history. Yes. I tracked I down DMX, guys. Like, I found, no. DMX was in a hotel room in Indiana, and I he got on, he, like, I tracked him down. As you do. It was, I had been trying to find this man for, like, two months. And people kept giving me different numbers and saying, he's here. You can talk to him at this time. Uh-huh. I get him on the phone. And it was, like, not happening. And I finally tracked him down to Indiana. And it was, like, he was so gracious. He's so amazing. Shout out to Earl Simmons. Yeah. There was a video of uh, DMX recently that I came out. Um, every now and again, I'll read. Well, typically, I read the, the Shea Room does this uh, morning inspiration. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I read actually, media takeout in the morning, it's fine. Hey, uh-huh. you know, you know, you got you got to get your black media where you can get it. Exactly, exactly. You gotta have a broad, broad swath. <laughs> but they actually posted this one video of him where he was um, he was at a homeless shelter, okay. and he was it, it was basically it had been like. I want to say it was it was ten years from like one of his most. Was dark and hell is hot? I think so. Yeah, it's dark and hell is hot. The first, that's the first one. Yeah. Yeah, and he was at this homeless shelter, and he he said that he had been having like a he had been having like a really tough uh, like tough week, and as you know, you know, DMX has he he's went through it in public, you know, yeah. for a yeah. long time. Came uh, being black in public. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said he woke up that day. And he realized, in hindsight, what he had accomplished. And he felt like, he was like, I could not sit, he was like, I could not sit still and not talk to someone else about what it means to keep trying and keep going. And that's, a, that's like, I'm like paraphrasing a little bit. But he, and, and then he, he, so he went to this homeless shelter, I guess it was in the city where he was at, the, at this particular time. It was, a, it was a room full of black men. And he just talked to them about like his struggle mm-hmm. and then prayed and something about that, like something about like something about the way one that DMX will give a speech and pray. Yo, that man is all about his faith. Like, 
Oh, he doesn't man. play about that. It had me all the way together. Like, Once I said, God bless you, Jason, like four times when we were on the phone. They're just like talking and he would just say, you know, God bless you, man. Yeah. But anyway, shout out to DMX. Like that, like that was, that had me good for like a week. The amount of love, I think that when I did this oral history of his second album, Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood, and we sort of talked to, to everybody that was a part of the making of it. But everything, a lot of a lot of things people were saying about DMX or this sort of this one consistent thread was that he just has so much love to give, right? Mm. Yeah. And even though, like you were saying, he's been through a lot and he's sort of like gone through all of that in public, mm-hmm. he's still this person with who has so much love for everybody around him and his crew, you know? Yeah. It's really astounding to sort of, with, for someone who's been through so much publicly um, and privately to just sort of just still have love, so much love to give. Yeah, right? and, and, and work... And wanting to get it, yeah, exactly right. to get to like get that out. You know, like he could have he could have had that moment like internally and you right, know, sat right, with himself, right. but it was important for him to go talk. Right. I never met DMX, but I did meet his wife Tashira, mm-hmm. um, and that like being the partner of somebody who's dealing with like addiction troubles can be i mean can be is likely taxing for a lot of people but she spoke of the same thing when she talked about him him just being such a loving good person because i guess they had known each other since they were like 14 or something like that and she had and this was maybe five years ago she still had like a lightness about her that was totally unexpected like a groundedness and a lightness about her that was totally unexpected um and that like you know i think he was still really struggling a few years ago and like i didn't know the particulars of their situation but like i was like the from the way that like just seeing her physically speak about him, mm-hmm. um, you could just feel who he was as a person, right? Um, in a way that really like surprised me. That I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting to really go, like. I wasn't expecting to meet to share Simmons and just be thinking that hard about like DMX. I was really you know there to just see her speak and hear what she had to say. Um, but yeah, no, like people like that like tend to leave an impression on others um, in a way that really shines through where you can see their character. And I think that like even I think about the photo series that you that was with the oral history of mm-hmm. DMX. I feel like a lot of punchlines have been made about him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If I think about like the past decade uh, and I feel like that piece was like a recentering and like a like recontextualizing him and his artistry. Right. Just sort of putting this humanist back into this person that we knew so well back in the day but sort of like you're saying somebody who's battled addiction but i think sort of recentering him and just putting up just like i was saying how like my sort of my one mandate is to just add more context to this conversation of blackness and like what is it and how does it morph and how does it grow and evolve and where does it come from and where is it going it's like i think a lot of that with the dmx story was like wanting to sort of like humanize him and again in a way but also just talk about something that we don't you know, talk about, I think in the legacy of DMX, that album, a lot of people hadn't engaged a lot. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to sort of retouch on that. But in a way that I think because, like we're saying, he's a very a person who's very about his faith. And I think that album especially is him battling his demons in front of everybody more so than his first album and the ones that came after it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's bathed in blood on the yeah. cover, right? Mm-hmm. The sort of like, this is me sort of like going, you know, going through it. Um, so I wanted to like just jump into that again, just you know, bring up that humanity and that that goodness and that and and that faith that that we knew that was there, but just sort of like remind people of that, right? And just bringing it again back to sort of this series of tweets that I do about sort of the Black Hair magazine, and mm-hmm. it's 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 sort of the same thinking behind that. It's like for me, the barbershop and the hair salon has always been a place of royalty, mm-hmm. right, within the Black community. Mm-hmm. It's just I think it's and I've been. I'm about to give away my one of the stories I've been trying to do. I've been trying to like get this in a magazine, but <laughs> it's it's been a, a bit of a fight. Um, but I, I want to talk about the black barbershop and I want to talk about the black hair salon. But I want to do it in a way that um, I think puts it on a pedestal that it hasn't been put on a pedestal, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Sorry, and I think because I think this is going to r- relate to kind of the direction you're going. You actually okay. you um you one of your posts recently was about monochrome, 
Um, oh, that right. There's yeah. a short film about. Mm-hmm. So Monochrome is this, it's a short film, loose, very loose narrative uh, in terms of most of it is just like kind of scenes. But like, it starts out with this really uh, beautiful, stark portrait of uh, a black man, you know, with the like the the I actually forgot what the hell you call it. The, it's not tunic. The cape, the, the cape that, that they put around you, when you're yeah. Yeah. and they're outside, and you know, uh, and he is like uh, the, one of the other men is is, is just cutting his hair. Did you ever really like? I, I had as someone who's gotten their hair cut every two weeks for the last thirty years. I, well, maybe not the last thirty. I don't think it was when I was a baby. I was getting my hair cut, <laughs> but um, at least for the last like twenty five years, you don't. I guess I've never really thought about this sort of relationship I had with my barber as being an intimate space, right? Yeah. Mm. And I saw it and I was like, oh man. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was like, "Yes, you get it." I yeah. was like, "Thank you." It's it, it, yeah. I mean, definitely. Like, it, it honestly, I had neither. Literally, until I saw this right. video. But like, if you really think about it, you know, the relationship you have with your barber is like this is an this is another man who needs to look at you um, as you come in and see like the best part of you. you also, know? someone who's like touching your face. Yeah, which is in itself a very intimate act, right? Yeah. Um, but just the idea of the barbershop as a sanctuary, right? And mm-hmm. the hair, you know, the hair black hair salon is mm-hmm. sort of a space of sanctuary where we don't all come in agreeing on things, but we're all in here together and we're going to leave the world outside, but while we're in this space, you know, we're going to put some love on each other. We're going to put some tough love on each other. Yeah. Um, we're going to keep it real, but we're also just going to like have a good time too. And I think it's this place I kind of want to explore next. I'm trying to put a piece together, uh, well, hopefully by the end of the year, but I, I kind of want to like give it some real love. Yeah, you know? for sure. I mean, it's one of the few like explicitly safe spaces that we really, you know, right, have. Right. Like you walk in and it's somebody you don't know, there's a hesitation. There's certain <laughs> politics to, I will say this, there are certain politics to the black barbershop that are kind of rooted along very rigid lines in the same way the black church is. Mm. But it's mm. still, I think, a, a safe space in, in the broad t- sense of the word. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I mean, I know what you mean. Like, there's a, there's a lot of, like, sometimes, you know, you're always sitting in there's that conversation. You're like, ah! <laughs> like <laughs> It's a generational thing sometimes, Absol- right? Absolutely. <laughs> you're you're like, like, I don't know, bro. <laughs> I would push back on that just a little bit, you know. Like maybe you should think about this a different way. I would way. say something, but you're about to give me a lineup, so maybe I won't say anything, you know. <laughs> I need this edge up to not be too close. When they hit you with that alcohol swab, it might be too hard. Um, yeah, I never went to the. I never went to a hair salon in regular. I've only. I've only just at 27 begun going to it mm-hmm. like a hairdresser on a regular basis because I didn't wear my hair straight when I was in high school but I am also old enough that natural hair was not popping there were no products you couldn't make money off of it mm-hmm. so like nobody really knew how to cut it it wasn't like a it wasn't like a thing so I just didn't go to the hairdresser really at all for most of my young life probably from when I was uh, and my auntie did my hair at home when I was a child um, and then, yeah, and then as a teenager, I didn't really go to a hair salon um, on any regular basis until, yeah, until now I'm 27. Um, but still, it's like a space where I find myself because even if you're not getting your hair done, you always have to go pick up somebody who's getting their hair <laughs> right. done. Somebody in your hair owns, somebody in your family right. always owns a salon. It's like bizarre how many times I found myself in a hair salon for somebody who never got their hair fucking done. Yeah. And it's such, it really is, it's such a specific, yeah. specific, specific place. It's very therapeutic in yeah. a way, you know? Yeah. Well, it's also something too about like the fact that people come in you come in in one state and you leave completely differently. Right. Even and feeling differently. Yeah, you leave feeling mm-hmm. differently. Even if it's just like because, even if it's only because you got your hair cut. Like even if that's the only thing that's holding you together that day. Or just because like, I don't know, the relationship that you can often have, I think, with a, like when I think about a salon or a barber shop, like when you have a person that you go see there, like right now I go see one woman who only sees people one at a time <laughs> right. in like one room. And it's wonderful because she it's on everything happens on time she never runs late i'm always done in like an hour and a half which is a magical experience for a black woman going to get her hair done Um, it really really truly is um but there's like you know knowing that you're going to enter a space where you're going to hear from so many different people and see so many different people um 
And like also like get up in so many people's business, <laughs> get up in so many people's business. Yeah, it's just like even if it's like you're kind of like maybe you're listening, and you're like, my problems are really not <laughs> that bad. Or I'm kind of going through this, but I don't want to speak to these people about it. I'm, let me just jot down this yeah. advice. It's just a it's a space. It's very transformative it on so many levels. It is. Yeah. Just like you're saying, sometimes it's just the matter of like getting your hair cut and walking out feeling fresh because yes. that's all that's literally holding you together that day yeah and you need to get your hair cut and if you don't it, it, it might be the end of the world right yes and sometimes it's other things that you're battling spiritually or mentally or emotionally right mm-hmm. um it's so important to at least and, and to my life and a lot of people in my life that i it's it's been so like central you know and i, I want to explore that and give it just give it more love so hopefully something later this year will be coming but yeah, in the meantime, the aesthetics are the aesthetics are, are very pleasing to us, and you've I think that you have definitely <laughs> well, I w- I say one hundred percent, ten out of ten, like you have hit the mark. Fader is a black hair magazine, so we appreciate <laughs> you. You know, we'd be out here trying to do it. You know. Okay, so now I think uh, would actually be a good time to take a break. Sounds good. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency creates personalized anti-aging formulas that smooth fine lines, lighten dark spots, and improve the appearance of dark circles. Each formula is tailored to you and prescribed by a licensed dermatology provider. Formulas are customized with clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than retinol. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome back. So obviously, in addition to being a senior editor at Fader, um, where you're able to, you know, commission and edit a lot of online work, you, you're also the founder and editor-in-chief of Spook. Yeah, my baby. Yes, a literary magazine. It's the only thing that brings me joy these days. <laughs> you got to have something. You got to have that joy, man. And you're also a co-founder of Brothers and Sisters. Oh, right. Wow. Yes. yes. I don't think I've ever publicly talked about this outside of, like, on a, like, a, like a podcast. Like, really? Like, people will bring up Spook. Yeah. But I was not expecting it at the question about brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm, well, I'm excited to incorporate that in because well, it's such a, yeah. It's, explain it's such what a it great is. Right. So, uh, so brothers and sisters is this, like, salon series based in New York um, where, you know, people uh, often, like, come together and, you know, kind of talk about a series of questions or issues or things that are, like, thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome because it's, like, a very communal experience, right. uh, you know, where everyone can kind of feel free to share and speak about the things um, that are kind of going on in their life as they relate to this central theme. Um, and, you know, you guys bring people in, and, and it's, it's, it's just a really great space. Actually, I often, some, like, people have described me or asked me about them. I was like, it's the closest I can get to if there were actual, like, official black people meetings. Like, this is what <laughs> I would hope that like they the would meetings be, like, I always joke about with my coworkers. Like, how do you know that person, like, at the black people meeting? Like, exactly. Like, once a month? <laughs> What do you mean? <laughs> like, this is what I would hope they would be. Um, but, yeah, so, like, you know, Spook is uh, this, like, you know, paper-bound magazine. And Brothers and Sisters are these events, you know, really, like, steeped in, like, group um, conversation and, like, shared right, learning. Right, right, right. Um, I'm curious as to why it was important for you to kind of create uh, these 
physical works, you know, if you will, outside of kind of the work you do online. Right, right. Brothers and sisters, Spook actually, I think they operate, they both have kind of the same goals, but they operate in on different frequencies, right? So, like, Spook actually started before, or I, I was sort of processing Spook and putting it together before I had a full-time job, right? So yeah. this happened, and Spook has actually almost been around. It'll be five years in wow. June. I think I should, like, do a big party or something. You should. Yeah, you definitely should. That's a big, that's a that's big, 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 big deal. deal. Yeah. So we're going to have a new issue. I don't know if I besides tweeting about this and maybe deleting the tweet <laughs> we're gonna have a new issue in at the end of may all fiction mm. um so spook started five years ago because i had felt that there were all these amazing and established literary and you know liberal journals um but so often you might have a zadie smith you might have a colson whitehead you might have a juno diaz but there wasn't a full book of us mm. there wasn't at least consistently right yeah. And I think coming out of grad school, or I was around on these, you know, brilliant minds from, you know, people of color. Um, and just knowing folks in my community, I was like, you know, I could put something together. It might not be as idolized as The New Yorker or Granta or Harper's, but I feel like w- among our community, we could really put something together. And so for a while, I had been thinking about it. I finally just did it when I moved out to New York. Um, and so the first issue was June 2012. And each issue, I try to at least have, you know, a little bit of fiction, poetry, essay. Um, and then it's really just an art journal. I mm-hmm. call it like a literary arts mashup, but that's just me like making up words um, <laughs> for like branding purposes. <laughs> um, but we've been very fortunate to feature a lot of like established authors, but yeah. also, you know, up and coming emerging authors. Right. Um, I think one of the lessons I learned putting Spook together was that. Sometimes you just have to email somebody you're a big fan of because they're a person too, and they might get back to you, but they might not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But most of the time they will. Right. Absolutely. That's how um, we've gotten a lot of folks. Yeah. On this show. <laughs> yeah. Just like yo, we, if we you like you don't you. know us, but we rock it with you. <laughs> but and then sometimes they do know you though, yeah. right? Yeah. And, yeah. You, and you're like, what? It, it's it's a little like weird, but also great. Um, and so I've been able to do that for the last five years, and then brothers and sisters started. We're going on our third year. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary last month um, in February, Black History Month. Shout out to Black History Month again. <laughs> um, me and my partner, Sada Ahmed, who's also one of the three co-founders of Everyday People, that sort of like big day party that goes on in New York for the mm-hmm. last few years. Um, we A few years ago, we were saying we would love to put like the salon style type together that they used to do. In the During the Harlem Renaissance, there's sort of famous sort of literary salons where people just literally just came together. And just talked about shit that was happening in the community. And so we started that two years ago. Every month we have a different theme or a different issue. Sometimes it's sort of of an open-ended forum where, like, because there's so much happening, people can just come and talk about whatever. Um, But that's been really successful. And I think the sort of idea behind both of them was that, I don't know, I came to New York, I think, I'm always looking for community, if that makes sense, Mm. right? And so both of these both spook as a a physical publication and brothers and sisters as a monthly sort of like um form that happens at mokata or in in crown heights at electropositive or uptown somewhere it's like these are both physical manifestations of me seeking or putting together community and fellowship Mm. right because we live on our phones now we live on our laptops and they're they sort of act as these dashboards between us right these sort of like walls Um, I mentioned this in something I wrote this week about how there was this theory put forward by Sherry Turkle in 2012 about in her book called Alone Together. Right. And so we have all these new technologies. We have text. We have Facebook. We have email. We have Snapchat. We have Instagram. And the idea is that they're connecting us more, but they're also siloing us more. We're in these sort of siloed um, places where it's like. We're talking to people, but we're talking to each other in bubbles, right? Mm. And so we're actually becoming more lonely. And so I think Spook and Brothers and Sisters were sort of like a pushback against that idea that let's bring people together in the real world. Let's let's put these ideas together or let's discuss these things in public in front of people and invite people, right? Um, They've been moderately successful right it's always when you said brothers and sisters i was like in my head like not a lot of people know about it but it's like i guess people do it's like sort of you know we're trying to expand but it's for now it's still only in new york you know? yeah mm-hmm. i mean i i mean 
I I think that sells it short a little bit. I've only had the like the way my schedule often works out. I, I rarely have a chance to go, but it's one of those things that. Uh, every time I see, I'm like, damn, I need to try to make that. Mm-hmm. Like, the way these babysitters cost, the way my, <laughs> my account we is We welcome set up. babies. We've had babies in there before. Like, right. It's 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 fine. All right, I have to bring her out Yo, next she's, time. She would love it. She loves people. She loves to talk now, too. Yes. So she might try to commandeer the mic. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but no, like, honestly, it was, it was so... Like, that was something I hadn't seen before mm-hmm. outside those more intimate spaces, right. like similar to a barbershop or similar right. to, you know, when you just, you know, happen to get lucky and are able to get all your friends over to uh, to your apartment to kick it. You know, like, mm-hmm. like outside of those types of uh, things, I, I personally rarely have the opportunity to kind of go and just, you know, sit and listen to like a, a kind of a free-flowing conversation mm-hmm. or like, a, you know, a collection of thoughts or ideas that I didn't necessarily uh, seek out or anticipate, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I rarely have, like, you know, like you might under, you might know the theme, but you don't know what people are going to say and what you're right, going to right, receive. Right. And I think that that's, it's super important, you know, and it's, uh, I've always found it really, really interesting and like, um, expanding. I often talk about like, you know, kind of expanding the way your like your brain a little bit stretching it a little bit and I often feel like um coming into those types of environments and coming into brothers and sisters like it's a it's a great way of just stretching how I think about you know even uh blackness and community mm-hmm. specifically so yeah it's also just also again bringing in a full circle a way to sort of how we're talking about pain management sometimes just giving people a space to speak right yeah because mm. they need to just say something or mm. just be around people who, like we're saying at the barbershop or people at Brothers and Sisters who are going through similar situations, right? And sometimes we don't know that going in, but then after somebody will say something to me or Sada, and it's like, oh, they're like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I really need this. And it's in that sense, it becomes very important. It becomes something about bigger than, you know, our initial goals for it. I have one last question. It's the very last thing. So we asked you sort of like what do you want always want to talk about but you never get asked about and the thing that you mentioned that we're going to talk about we want to ask you about is viola davis's <laughs> oscar speech which like i didn't watch the broadcast right. but like i'm pro viola davis my mother is viola davis's She's the president of Viola Davis. (laughs) She's every day, every single day. My mom is just like, you know, for me, Viola Davis is just just a brown skin, strong, smart, up from poverty. You know, she's up there with Michelle Obama. I mean, every day my mother manages to weave Viola Davis into our conversation. Um, And so she should as as she should as she should. I'm a 62 year old black woman from Detroit, Michigan. So my mother should always be talking about Viola Davis. (laughs) Um, But. You're, I didn't watch. I didn't watch the broadcast, but I did watch her speech, right. and I'm wondering. And her speech was, I mean, it was beautiful. Every single speech they, that she delivers, yeah, they always R- are right, beautiful. Right, right. But she touched on like so many different things. She touched on obviously fences and like the legacy of August Wilson and the every man Shout sort out of to August Wilson, writes. who is so important. I feel like he's he's not underrated because I hate when people say somebody is underrated because mm-hmm. that that sort of takes away the the love that they're already getting from the people that know about him yeah. or her, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But um, August Wilson, I think, and just sort of sort of public consciousness is, is not as beloved as he should be. I would agree. I would um, agree. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, uh, no, but I was just going to ask, like, like, well, yeah, she talked about August Wilson. She talked about his legacy of sort of, like, being a champion for the everyman. Right, right. And also, like, you know, she always, as she always does, a nod to her humble beginnings. And I'm wondering, like, you were just like, Viola Davis, Oscar speech, drop the mic. Like, wh- what did you want to talk about? What was in there that was on your mind? I saw, because I, I didn't really watch it in real time either. Um, but when she won, my fr- fr- two friends texted me. Um, and then I saw the speech later online. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember seeing a joke on Twitter the next day. They were like, somebody, she should win an award for all the speeches that she gets, right? Because <laughs> yeah. they're all so good. Yeah. And then somebody else was like, she should just drop a mixtape of her speeches, <laughs> which I also agree with. <laughs> I agree. She should literally, it's literally like, Iyanla fixed my life is like Viola fixed my life. If she had like a, a tape or something that people could listen to, like, you know how much that would sell? She could win that Grammy. Yeah. I still want it to be almost like a mixtape and have it be like DJ Drama or DJ Cannon, like in between, like <laughs> Cannon, Cannon, you know, like, and then she comes in, like, or like Funk Flex dropping bombs in between. <laughs> like, I would, I would buy that real quick. <laughs> um, but there is this, 
So, right. So she's talking about sort of the everydayness that we don't that we don't always acknowledge in the public space. And I think Fences for her was that that opportunity and just the roles that I think she takes on. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, She was in The Help, which I never saw, but she Mm -hmm. was a a black maid in The Help. She plays um, the sort of not your typical black lawyer on how to get away with murder. Mm -hmm. Um, um, A black woman who has agency right which you don't always see on television and a black woman who's not afraid to be herself um which is beautiful um in its own right um but i i think there's this there's she's so special in the way that i think you were saying how your mom just like loves her um she's so special to us because you can tell when somebody loves us right you can Mm. tell when somebody is trying to put that love back into the community when she recognizes our beauty and she wants to share that with the world right um so i just think i'm just so grateful for her and to her to sort of be able to articulate that time and again right Mm. um in front of white folks but also in front of us to to realize to you know hey i'm I'm here with you guys and i see you guys Mm. and i recognize you guys and we're going to keep doing this, you know, it's important. I'm really excited, too, because Denzel, I heard they signed, like, some deal where they're also going to produce a few more of August Wilson's plays for the screen. <sighs> that yeah. sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, so I'm so excited. That century cycle is so important. It's yeah. so For people who don't, I don't, I don't know if this might no, no, please. No, yeah. So the August Wilson century cycle, he wrote a play for each decade of the 1900s. Yes. Um, and so Fences was the 40s, 50s? 40s, I think it might have been the 50s. I okay. think it was the 50s, yeah. yeah. But he has a play for each uh, for each decade, and it's probably one of the most phenomenal pieces of this body of work that I've ever been able to sort of yeah. like experience. And I haven't seen all the plays, but Me I've either. read most of them. I think I've read most of them. Um, Jitney right now on Broadway. Yeah. Shout out to Andre Holland. Shout out to Andre Holland. Shout out to Brandon J. Dearden. I'm a big fan of like the whole cast of Jenny. I, I haven't seen it. Yeah, I want to see I it. I, see it. I wish plays weren't so expensive. I know. The They're a little elitist in that way where it's like only certain people can see these stories, but I do want to see Jitney. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So this wasn't part of her speech. This is I saw footage of this later when she was taking questions backstage. Uh-huh. And then somebody asked her, what do you love about being a black woman? And obviously this was a white person because another black person never asked no, her. No, that's And then she question. said, she she summed it up so easy. She said everything. Yeah. And, and, she, yep. and she said and she, it with such like, she was like, uh, what? She was like, what? <laughs> she was like uh, everything. <laughs> How did I not see that? It was, I mean, so it was a amazing. real quick bite. But it was, yeah. She's was amazing. Really, I might just like delete every podcast <laughs> feed that I have and just have that clip. <laughs> People go, they're like, download episode. <laughs> Just Viola Davis talking about loving being a black woman. That, to me, is better than the whole sum of, of my body of work. Uh, well, like Viola Davis, you know, she sees us. She loves us. She wants us to know that we're valued. Uh, I think that you do that a lot with your work. And I really do. I really do. I really Definitely. do. Yeah. It, it was this. So what? shout out to Kiese Lehman, who was one of sort of my mentors at Gawker. He was he was over. He was one of our contributing editors, but he oversaw the true stories that we would run on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sort of long essays. And then eventually we sort of expanded that and we were doing that a lot more during the week. Yeah. Um, but one of the early things that he taught me was that this idea of decentering whiteness from the conversation. So a lot of times I think blackness is in reaction to whiteness or blackness is just sort of like it's in reaction. But it's also like it's it's always somehow coming back to whiteness in a way that it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so what he, he does a lot in his writing, which I admire, and I'll, there are a few other writers that do this very well, is that when they when they write they're talking to other black people. They're not necessarily trying to translate it for white folks, mm. right? Which I think happens a lot um, in, in writing or essay writing these days. Um, so I think for me, it's it's been a lot about decentering whiteness from the center of this sort of like conversation that we're trying to have and just speak amongst ourselves, sort of what this podcast is doing or sort of what Moonlight was doing, how blackness was the default. Because yeah. mm. imagine when blackness is the default, you're not having these surface level conversations about blackness. You're not ta- talking about this sort of basic blackness isn't just this one thing which we always seem to come back to we're talking beyond it so much that we're not even talking about it anymore right yeah so i think that's sort of me what i've been trying to do as an editor and i think as i try to pivot a little bit and do more writing i'll be trying to do in the writing as well looking forward to that ready ready. (laughs) out here ready for the revolution hey ready I'm just trying to be like your hat and get free. Get free. Shout out to my coworker Lake, and she makes these uh, get free. I need one. I have That's to get beautiful. y'all one. Yeah. Yes. They come in different colors. So, yes. you know. Shout out to black entrepreneurs. Just yes. Uh, get the money. Get that money. Get Literally, the money. just get the money. 
Well, thank you so much for coming. Of course, of course. Thank yeah. you guys for having me. This oh is amazing. Goodness. Oh my gosh, our pleasure, our pleasure. Yeah. Seriously. Anytime we we'll want to come back, just let us know. Let us know. <laughs> it's it's a little early on a Sunday for me, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm love to come back. Maybe later this year. Yeah. <laughs> cool, yes. cool, cool, cool. Well, thank you so much, Jason. You are fantastic. Yes. And speaking of black businesses. <laughs> Speaking of black businesses, you can actually support a black business by donating to For Colored Nerds on Patreon. Yes. Uh, Patreon.com slash For Colored Nerds. Yes. Just go there. Anything that you are able to contribute allows us to keep this show going. Yes. We do need it. We sadly, need it. it is not cheap to do this. No. <laughs> sadly, it's not cheap to do this. So every single dollar counts. And you can donate as little as $1 for $12 a year. You too can be a part of the for color nerds magic. I don't know if is that is that's that a good, that's I'll, a stretch. I don't I'll, know if that's I'll a roll stretch. with it. Yeah. Hashtag reparations. Hey 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 hey. hey. <laughs> uh, but another way you can support us is to go to iTunes or you know or your other like however you listen to podcasts if there's a review system and leave us a review. Yes. Yes, we really appreciate it. It helps people to discover our show yes. and to know that, you know, we're not about no bullshit, that yes. we come out here real. Yes. What, what do you say? Third eye open? Third eye open. <laughs> My third eye is open. But thank you guys so much for listening. This has been another pop edition of four colored nerds uh this show is produced by me Brittany luce and my partner eric eddings and yes. also our producer bethel hapte um copyright 2017 i don't know what else this was supposed to say. trademark trademark <laughs> trademark i don't know yeah anyway that that is the point look out for us in about two weeks in about two weeks yeah yeah and we'll be back soon stay healthy Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.